Today on The Novelizers, from Futurama, Maurice LaMarche, comedian Beth Stelling, plus Jerry Cole and intern Kevin Carter. Now here's your host, Andy Richter. Hi, I'm Andy Richter. All my life I had one simple dream, a dream that fired my imagination, a dream to build something big, something special, something I knew in my heart would leave this world a better place than I found it. I called it the Guybrader, and it didn't pan out. But then I had another idea. Make a podcast where a bunch of comedy writers rewrite classic movies, making them real funny, and then get cool actors to read them. I call that one The Novelizers, and you're listening to it right now. This season on The Novelizers, we're exploring strange new worlds and going where only 13 movies, 12 TV shows, a couple of comic books, and a breakfast cereal have gone before and since. I'm talking about the film Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. But before we dive into the deep end, let's get our toes wet by having my intern, Kevin, fill us in on the story so far. Kevin, get over here and wet my toes. Uh, well, Captain Kirk and friends are battling the evil Khan. They fought twice and Khan has finally lost. But then Khan realizes, wait a minute, I still got this Genesis thing, and he turns it on, which will destroy the Enterprise if it can't get away in time. Thanks. Today's first chapter was novelized by Sheck Baker and narrated by Maurice LaMarche, star of Futurama, Rick and Morty, and 6,000 of your other favorite animated shows. Seriously, check out his IMDb page. I am not even exaggerating. Monsieur LaMarche, engagez-vous. Chapter 17, The Annoyance of Nunian. Novelized by Sheck Baker. Narrated by Maurice LaMarche. Reliant, limping, ruined, her amputated limbs a crackle with arcing fire, seemed but a wraith now amid the waves of static washing across the viewscreen. Her foe all but vanquished, the tension on the Enterprise bridge slowly began to uncoil, and with it, the vigilance of her bridge crew. Here, collected together from across the whole universe, were the smartest, most insufferable overachievers from almost a dozen worlds, each with the highest-weighted GPA in their respective space high schools. Aside from the human cadets, there was a Cadet Wolfman's from Planet Frankenstein, a squid-faced guy from Star Wars, a couple of Frankensteins from Archoner 3, a.k.a. Frankenstein's Planet, you know, all the best kinds of aliens, and they were using the apparent victory over Khan as a permission slip to drag ass. They seemed to be taking their cues from David, the marooned scientist from Regular One, who was leaning against a console like an abandoned country club brat, sweater draped over his shoulders, a lit cigarette dangling from his lips. Only the two Vulcans, Savick and Spock himself, attended their duties with appropriate alacrity. Spock, as ever heeding the sacred science officer's creed, scan or die, directed his scanners onto every conceivable object nearby. Scanning the surrounding nebula returned the familiar nebula-shaped wave to his view panel. Scanning Enterprise's engineering section detected a wave of mutilation. Scanning Reliant, waves for dead superhumans, the Khan wave, and... Admiral, Spock intoned, and Kirk swiveled in his chair. Scanning an energy source on Reliant, a pattern I've never seen before. David lurched over and leaned in to take a look at the reading, his ample curls spilling into Spock's face, his sig ashing all over the carpet under Spock's station. Spock abided this, as Spock ever abided such galling human dipshittery. 
It's the Genesis wave, David yelled. What? said Kirk, rising in alarm from his seat. Kirk raced over to the science station to stare at the wave, uncomprehending as usual, squinting at the undulating lines. Two humans in Spock's face, blocking the science scanner. The bridge crew, jolted out of their collective reverie, went totally squirmy at the news. How soon? asked Kirk, all business, all man of action, ready to spring. David put on his best serious boy face. We encoded four minutes. Kirk scrunched up his nose, puzzled. We! David's eyes darted side to side, and he opened his mouth, but all that came out was, Kirk rolled his eyes, waved a hand, and half turned away. Never mind. We'll beam aboard and stop it. David reached out and grabbed Kirk's arm. You can't! Kirk looked down at David's hand and then up, staring daggers. David relaxed his grip on Kirk's arm and gulped. I can't? Kirk swiped David's hand away. Can't I? What do you know about can't? This is what Daddy does. Um, no, stammered David, taking a nervous drag and flicking ash everywhere. What I mean is, you can beam aboard, but once the countdown starts... Kirk glowered and held a finger to David's lips. You, he hissed. Shut. He then stabbed the intercom button. Scotty, I need warp speed in three minutes. We're all dead. He turned back toward David for the first time in his son's life, giving him his full attention. So, you have a thing that factory resets planets counting down over there, he seethed, jerking his thumb at Reliant. And when it goes off, it's going to shred all of us down to atoms and overwrite our DNA with jungles full of space plants. And you're telling me you set the timer for, what was it, Spock? Four minutes, Admiral. Four minutes, thank you. You've got a four-minute timer on God's infinite fury and you didn't bother to install an off switch on the fucking whatever it's called? David tilted his head back, spat smoke in Kirk's face, cranked up his best bad scientist sneer. Uh, it's called a Genesis, Dad. He'd even air-quoted Dad. Snorting like a rhino, Kirk raced back to Spock Station and jammed the intercom button again. Who had time for this kid's shit now? Never mind, he'd make time. Scotty! He imagined that yelling harder somehow made a difference. Uhura, peeved at Kirk's refusal to follow proper telephone etiquette, broke in testily. No response, Admiral. Kirk whipped around at Uhura, gesturing at David. And he thought the military would turn his precious genesis into a weapon. Ha! Uhura, blushing, kept at her duties, pretending this wasn't happening again. Tell me, son, he said, returning the air quotes and grinning at everyone. How many of us are going to get killed by the peacenik scientists today? Now the whole bridge crew shifted in their seats, paying real close attention to whatever bullshit was gumming up their monitors. Hmm? David just stood there, half-sneering. Not so fucking smart now. Kirk elbowed past him and barked at Sulu. Get us out of here. Best possible speed. Aye, sir. His face grim as the engines chugged to some approximation of life. The ship banked away from Reliance so slowly, the crew might have thought they were back in space dock. Kirk turned again and made toward David in deliberate fury. David took a long, brave drag on his sig and balled up his uncalloused science fists. Kirk grabbed the sleeves of David's sweater and cinched them around David's neck. Spock rose from his seat, deftly avoiding the father-son scrum, and made for the turbo lift. Humans and their rituals, he thought. Logically, if they needed the Enterprise to work right, then someone would have to go fix the Enterprise. Ladder by hatch, hatch by ladder, 
Spock descended toward engineering. With the turbo lifts disabled, he would be forced to climb down the whole height of the ship, an ordeal comprising the most merciless, most tedious platforming stage in the entire movie. Depleting any ordinary crewmen of all their lives, and usually culminating in a rage-quit reset, this infuriating level had been programmed by bored, underpaid Taiwanese who had neither seen the film nor cared to understand the plot. The obstacles, therefore, consisted of totally whack enemies, usually other crewmen undertaking nonsensical attacks, and stupid shit like dripping lava, damaging clouds of steam, and the usual pits filled with instant-kill energy spikes. Spock would have relished the challenge had he been capable of relish. However, he did pause to offer prayer to the gods of logic for help with this ultimate trial. Dear ones and zeros, he began, jumping over a low fireball, I know I do not often appeal to you for assistance, but... He held his tongue briefly to duck under a high fireball. He never got the chance to finish. Out of nowhere, an alleged Mr. Scott ran at Spock, lifting up his kilt and exposing his foul nakedness. Spock stepped to the side and administered a neck pinch. As Scott sank to the floor unconscious, his genitalia writhing, Spock groaned, I am sorry, I have no time to discuss this logically. Then the Vulcan reached up to Scott's fleshy face and inserted his katra into the engineer's head. Just a little insurance in case Spock needed a quick resurrection later. But if the whole ship gets blown up, no. Spock sidestepped a little plant shooting energy balls. No, there wasn't time to consider the no-win scenario. Spock hurried through another hatch and climbed down yet another ladder. Suddenly, a cadet ran toward him, howling and swinging nunchaku at its hairy claws. Spock arched an eyebrow and neck-pinched the fuck out of the guy, saying, I am sorry, Cadet Wolfmans. I have no time to discuss this logically. This went on for some time. Lava, ladder, spike pit, hatch, putting his katra into dude after random dude, until finally Spock arrived at engineering, having died only four times the whole way down. In thanks, he pulled out his necklace and kissed the symbol of his beloved logic gods, a medallion in the shape of the formula 1 plus 1 equals 2. Slumped on the floor near some super-important engine stuff was the real Mr. Scott, in his real radiation-resistant kilt. Over him crouched McCoy, attempting without success to rouse him by slapping him lightly on the cheeks and muttering, Come on, goddammit! McCoy stopped all of a sudden, and his ears seemed to prick up. Spock sensed that McCoy could feel his presence, could see the doctor's back stiffening, could predict the doctor would intuit his sacrificial move to rescue the ship, could tell that McCoy would soon be maligning his Vulcan mind, and in moments McCoy was indeed on his feet, blocking Spock's path to the main energizer compartment. Are you out of your Vulcan mind? McCoy demanded. No human can tolerate the radiation that's in there. Oh, fuck this already, said Spock, pinching McCoy to the ground. He grabbed Scott's radiation gloves and moved toward the reactor, then quickly turned back to insert his katra into McCoy. One more for luck, as humans might say. Remember, he said solemnly, and then ran for the reactor room. Ignoring a big red sign flashing radiation, Spock entered the compartment's revolving door and spun into a hellstorm of rapidly decaying engine byproducts. Rays named after every letter in the Greek alphabet pelted Spock's atoms, blasting them all apart. Freed up neutrons and protons started piling up under Spock's dermis. Pulling on Scotty's puffy white radiation gloves. What's up, Doc? A human reference joke. Spock went to work. Scott himself was now astir, 
and seeing Spock through the radiation-proof glass, puttering around in the reactor room wearing only a pair of overstuffed gloves, began giggling. Suddenly, realizing this wasn't just another wish-fulfillment dream, Scott leapt to his feet. Spock! he screamed. Get out of there! To no avail. Spock! Hey! You owe me a tenner! The main energizer was housed in a black, dick-shaped pillar in the middle of the hexagonal reactor room. Once bonked out of alignment, Spock knew the only way to rejigger the energizer with the engine running was to pull the mushroom head off that pole and jam his whole hand in there while enough radiation blasted him in the face to melt his ears off. It was a good thing Spock was Vulcan, because the whole thing was a bit too sexy. Spock! yelled Scotty again, clearly out of good ideas. Get out of there! Back on the bridge, the remaining crew had formed into a ring around the Admiral's chair, making bets on the fly while Kirk and David threw haymakers and insults at each other in turn. Kirk was dismayed to note that the crew were cheering wildly, and the name they were shouting was not Jim. Nonplussed and off-balance, Kirk swung wildly at David, both hands knotted together, and missed. But David's counterpunch glanced harmlessly off the sweat on Kirk's forehead. And the Admiral twirled around and socked his son square underneath the jaw, knocking him sprawling to the floor. The still-lit cigarette smashed into his gnarled and busted teeth. The crew let out a gasp of disappointment and began settling up. Kirk spat on David's face. Dumbass, am I? he shrieked. Well, double dumbass on you! David moaned and tried to roll over to Kirk's disgust. I can't believe you're playing my son. You're worse than Chekhov. He spat again. Mr. Savick, time for my mark. Savick, exchanging cash with the other betters, glanced at her chronometer. Two minutes, ten seconds. Kirk frowned. Something was off. He'd beaten the shit out of a guy, but still felt crummy. Engineering, he bellowed into the intercom. I just did a Star Trek-type fighter on my own kid, and I'm starting to think it was really fucked up. Are we going to die or what? But whoever the Ahura of engineering was, they'd taken a powder, or they'd been reduced to a powder-like substance by Reliant, and Kirk's squawking went unanswered. After watching Spock suicide himself around the reactor room, Scott had run out of words anyway. You dumb... Uh, Nini, get out of there! Spock moved uneasily toward the Energizer housing. No! God, don't! yelled Scott. The warranty! Spock fumbled for the reactor cover and gave the head a medium-sized tug until it popped off in his arms and he set it aside. Now McCoy was stumbling to his feet outside the chamber, rasping, Good God, man! Get out of there! Spock, however, couldn't hear much beyond the fat laser beam of radiation spewing into his face. He reached right into the energizer housing, and though the gloves he wore could not possibly save him, they might keep his fingers from turning into unresponsive goop before they had a chance to screw the thing back in. On the bridge, the thrill of the Donnybrook had faded, and the mood had turned sullen again. As the crew watched Reliant on the view screen, it seemed not to be receding, even by tiny increments, but impossibly to be closing in. Time, Kirk demanded. Three minutes, thirty seconds, replied Savick. Kirk threw her a withering look. You just said two minutes. He threw his hands up in exasperation while Savick averted her eyes. Yes, you did. You said two minutes, like twenty seconds ago. Am I crazy? Doomed crewmen sighed and pulled down the skin under their eyes one last time as Kirk whipped himself into a froth. We started with four minutes, then we had two minutes, and now it's three. I mean, if it's three, great. 
He plopped into his chair and spun lazily. Distance from Bliant. Chekhov cleared his throat and choked back. Four thousand kilometers. Sulu winced. We're not going to make it, are we? Kirk waved at the screen, helpless. I, I mean, no. The thing's right fucking there. They all looked, and there was no denying how right fucking there the thing was. Reliant and its Old Testament god bomb was, without a doubt, close enough to blow all their worthless asses straight to fucking space hell. Damn, that it sounded good. Kirk hoped he'd said it aloud. Kirk glanced over at David, slumped and wounded, his bloodied face finally throwing the subtext of Kirk's absentee fatherhood into bold-faced type. And what had been the point of that brutal display? Truth was, he'd marched them all to this cringeworthy end, and there was nothing he could do but big-dick his own son in front of a bunch of interns. He'd only just met this boy earlier that day, and what's the first thing he'd done? Stomped in like a drunk and stepped all over his science project. Questioned his manhood, broken his face, and these others. He looked at the dejected creatures lurking in the shadows of the bridge. These were all his real children, weren't they? These animals licking their chops at the idea he'd finally go down, as though some scientist could have... Perhaps he should... No, the shame was too great. Better to keep punching down. And watch, now Chekhov's going to tell us it's only 2,000 kilometers. Chekhov squirmed at his station, hemming and hawing at his tactical readout. Well, now that you have said something, Admiral... Kirk just waved him off, staring at the stomach-curdling truth of the big screen. Dying this way was probably too good for him. On Reliance Bridge, on what remained of it, Reliance's only living occupant perceived the distance of Enterprise, or lack thereof, with relative glee. Khan beamed through a mask of blood, a sardonic grin twisting up his mutilated visage, as he saw through the static that Enterprise could not possibly flee from Genesis, from Destiny, from Khan. No, he whispered. No, you can't get away. Khan stroked his chin with one useless dead puppet hand and watched Enterprise fail to escape. It was the best of times, he snarled. It was the worst of times. Khan glanced around his bridge for approval, but the dead piled nearby were mute to his performance. No, no, this would simply not do. But wait. With his last ounces of strength, Khan crawled over to his beloved Yakim, held his long, blonde head in two slick, gory hands, then tore it from its spine and held it aloft in his good paw. He turned back to the screen, lips pulled back in a nauseating grimace. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. On the screen, Enterprise inched away in wounded silence. Pathetic. Khan's heart leapt as he imagined Genesis surging in his hold, totally badass beams of light and dry ice smoke pouring out of it. Only seconds remained. Khan chuckled as sparks flew down around him on his mangled bridge. Hey, Moby Dick, he spat at Enterprise. It is me, Captain Ahab, from that book. Though Khan's racked body tried mightily to die, Khan willed it to continue, so that his eyes, leaking blood, might witness his final pyrrhic triumph. And now, I think, Kirk, he gasped, watching Enterprise flounder, we ourselves have together written a new literary masterpiece. 
He coughed blood onto his useless, palsied hand. <coughs> yes, it is a book I shall call Mr. Singh's Fabulous Payback. Spock staggered away from the Energizer, the work complete. He lacked any strength to move, but not the will, as gross globs of his skin dripped off his skull, and four new stubs of tentacle slithered about his ruined torso. Ugh, my beloved Spocktopus, wailed Scott. Spock picked up the reactor lid with both gloves. He dared not think that what remained within them could possibly be hands by now, and with one last heave, plopped it back on top of the stern. He felt something heave, in turn, within the bowels of the Enterprise. Logic had once again prevailed. Scotty turned his tear-streaked face to McCoy. Was that all he was trying to do? He blubbered. I could have done that. McCoy gestured to the flashing red radiation sign. But what about... McCoy! Scotty cocked his head at the doctor and pointed to the console opposite the reactor room. Above the panel, a flashing green, no radiation sign. Below the sign, a toggle switch labeled, Emergency Main Energizer Reset. Kirk waited for the end of his life while viewing on the screen the agent of his forthcoming demise. Khan's going to win, he thought, shaking his head, mesmerized by the lifeless hulk of Reliant out there, about to become the mother of his destruction, finish off his son, euthanize all these other misbegotten, misled space kids. Khan is actually about to beat me, he thought, and I don't even remember if I managed to fuck his wife or not. That's what this whole thing had to be about, right? Ah, well, he said aloud. He could feel it, coming from the crew, what almost seemed like relief. But he supposed he owed them something, at last. It's finally over, Kirk whispered. He stood up. <clears throat> well, everybody, he began. Suddenly, an electric chirp yelped out of the engineering console. The cadet manning the station leapt out of his chair, lukewarm coffee spraying in all directions. Naturally, thought Kirk, this is how the day ends. Of all the fucking... Sir, sputtered the cadet, more coffee splashing every which way. The mains are back online. All forgotten, all forgiven, whole once more, invincible, perfect Kirk. Bless you, Scotty, he mumbled, swiping coffee off his face and then shouted, Go, Sulu! Sulu threw Enterprise into warp speed as Genesis and Reliant exploded in a righteous firestorm that engulfed the whole nebula, sucking every stray particle into its expanding maw. The jaws of the blast opened wide, sprinting after Enterprise, snapping shut, and missing, fading out just behind her antimatter trails. Enterprise raced into the darkness as all that had once existed inside the Mutara Nebula filled with new light and became something else altogether. Ah, this podcast makes life worth living, wouldn't you agree? Well, before we get to our next chapter, we're going to mix things up a little bit and have my intern Kevin Carter interview someone who's actually worked on the film Wrath of Khan. Kevin, take a spin in the captain's chair. Hello, everyone. I'm back. Uh, this is Kevin Carter. I'm Andy's intern, and I'm your host for the interview portion of The Novelizers. Today, I'm here with Jerry, who is the door tech for Wrath of Khan 2. Jerry, how's it going today? Hi, Kevin. It's great. You know, I just want to quickly correct you it, uh, i was the master of doors for wrath of khan it's my technical well, yeah. title 
I, I apologize for that. Um, please don't, uh, you know what I'm saying? I, my, my apologies. I'm sorry, guys. The master of doors, Jerry. There it yes. is. Yes, or the door key is, you know, another term that uh, we would use around set, the door key. Okay, not a problem, not a problem. Um, so what made you get into being uh, a door tech? I'm sorry, a master of doors. I got to say, you know, from a very early age, I knew... Uh, that I wanted to get into working with doors. Were you were you worried that um, you know being in this profession wouldn't be well receptive to your peers or to your family or anything like that? Mm. Getting into the door um, business is tricky. You know, it's it's a lot about who you know. Like most things, it's a lot about who you know. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know my my there were members of my family that were a little concerned that I might not be making, you know, the wisest decision. It's, uh, you know, cause you're either, you know, you got to go big or go home when mm-hmm. it comes to doors. And so, uh, you know, it really, it takes a lot out of you. And, uh, so yeah, there, there were some members of my family who, who were concerned that I maybe was going down, not the best path. You were, um, hired on to be a door tech for Wrath of Khan. Uh, Star Trek Two. Mm. How 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 was that uh, experience being a door tech there? Ooh, well, you know, I I'd only worked on uh, smaller you know projects prior to Wrath of Khan. You know, I'd I'd done a sitcom here. I'd I'd done a you know a, a turnstile or two, but I you know I hadn't really done any big door work um, before prior to this film. So you know, when I got that call, I really just who I went through it, you know, I, I, which I think most people, you know, in high pressure professions, you know, they're, you know, would be able to relate. They, you know, do I have what it takes? You know, I, I spent a lot of time wondering, do I have what it takes? Um, but you know, then once I got to set and, you know, uh, saw the doors I was going to be working with, um, mm-hmm. you know, and figured out, you know, what, the game plan and how we were going to execute all of the openings and closings. And it just became exciting. You know, there was one iconic moment of the movie that I think about mm. a lot. And That's it right. was when, it was when Spock died. You know what I'm about to say? It's when Spock, when Spock died. Oh, I sure do. How does it feel to like, you know, be a part of that? Because I mean, I, I, I'm assuming you were a part of that, even though, you know, saying it was a door that, of course, it, you, it didn't open, but you were a part of that spot of, of being part of that, right? A little known fact, that door was supposed to open. Excuse, excuse me? You said, uh, the, I'm sorry, did you say that again? That door, yes, in that final scene of Wrath of Khan, where Spock dies in the radioactive chamber because the door is closed, that door was supposed to open. No, I don't believe you, Jerry. I don't, there, there, there's no That's, way. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. That door was supposed to open and he was supposed to run into the room with the other technicians, high five them. They were going to do a one, two, three cheers. Wow. You know how they used to do in, um, in 80s TV shows where they would end on the pause where they were in celebration and like in the air. That's what was written in the script. We uh, had miscalculated the weight of those doors and the wire snapped. The wire snapped and the actors were so talented. They just went with it. They improvised that whole last scene. At the end, the, 
Everyone was in tears and the director said, cut, print, we're keeping it. Wow. <laughs> it was really, it was a really incredible moment. I got to tell you. Jesus Christ. Novelizers, you are hearing it here first. You are hearing it here live. Jerry killed Spock. You hearing it live. This actually happened. And it's been one of my proudest, proudest moments. One final question for you. It's more like a personal question for me. Um, so this might be TMI, but I used to uh, date a girl who uh, who was in the porn industry, right? And um, she didn't like to take her work home. Wow. So so when it comes to you know saying us having the sex, uh, we didn't really have it because she didn't want to because she does that at work. Um, okay. And, and, and it, it, it ruined the relationship. You know, it lasted a good week and a half, but it ruined the relationship. Um, do you do you have moments where you know you open doors all day long? When you get home, you don't want to open doors. Do you have moments like that? Uh, every day, you know, every day. I I actually, this is a little known fact, um, don't have any doors in my home. I don't have any doors on my bedroom, on my bathroom. I don't, uh, my fridge. I uh, don't have a front door. I don't have a single door in my house. Because you know what? I got to leave it at work. I got to leave it. Because otherwise, you know, bringing that stress home is like, where's the line, you know? So, so, so you just, so you just got to open, just an open yeah. walk-in, walk-out policy, you know, if you're at your at your house. I essentially just live in a carport. Um, okay. And that is the closest design I think that people would understand. Uh, a carport with, you know, a, a few pieces of furniture and a toilet. Um, thank everybody for listening to this interview portion of the Novelizers. This was Jerry. I have been Kevin Carter. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Thanks, Kevin. Next up is a chapter novelized by Mickey Cathers. Yes, that Mickey Cathers, and narrated by writer and comedian Beth Stelling. Beth, engage. Chapter 18, Live Long or Die Trying, novelized by Mickey Cathers. Narrated by me, Beth Stelling. The Enterprise is a zooming like a bat out of hell through concentric circles of light while shooting rainbows at its butt. On the deck, our intrepid heroes, Kirk, Sulu, Savik, and Petty Officer Manny Petty, gaze awestruck out the windshield of the spaceship as the elevator door whooshes softly open behind them. Kirk and Manny Petty turn to see Dr. Carroll, fresh from the ski lodge, fetching in her gorgeous Donna Karen maroon and cream parka, paired expertly with light blue mom jeans. Carol steps forward, hands in pocket, mesmerized by the view. Savik and Sulu still stare stupidly straight ahead, mouths open like they're trying to catch space flies. My God, Carol, look at it, Kirk says, and this ain't the first time if you catch my drift. A little but this time he was totally referencing this big red ball of light, this middle school PE dodge ball of light shining brightly outside, out there in the outer space. Carol ignores Kirk's obvious come on, again, not the first time, and goes to hold hands with her son, David, just absolutely stealing the show in his green jumpsuit and white sweater tied around his neck. These two are ready for the runway. Jim, I think you better get down here comes a voice out of Kirk's chair. It is the Bones Doctor. Kirk, no dummy, looks to Spock's empty chair, just knowing that knucklehead did something silly. 
He has got to see this shit. Kirk hops up from his chair like a dog that's heard a whistle. You probably can't hear because it's too high for humans. He barks to Savak to take the chair, but he doesn't tell her where to take it. Presumably because he heard that whistle we didn't hear and like has no time to finish his thought about chair placement at a time like this. Kirk enters another elevator on the other side of the deck, passing our fashion icons who continue to lovingly watch the gigantic dodgeball of fire growing in size in the vast, sparkly, black velvet drapes of space. As this terrifying ball of fire starts looking more and more like the inside of a volcano, radiating smelly gases, Kirk runs through the hallways of the spaceship, also radiating smelly gases. But he's not running full speed. He wouldn't want to pull a hammy. But like, faster than a jog, maybe? Sort of fast, not sprinting. Maybe he's frightened of that giant ball of fire like any rational human being should be, and is trying to get away from it as fast as he can. But not stupid fast, because like, what if you tripped? You could hurt your ankle. And then good luck getting away from that ball of fire then. Kirk reaches engineering, totally body checking some poor dude in his spaceman suit and starts climbing down the ladder before he remembers how fun it is to just treat the ladder like a fireman's pole and slide down like a boss, his bell-bottom slacks inflating to slow his descent. But no one is paying any attention. All the spacemen are staring into the middle of the room, don't even notice their captain running through them like he's bowling for penguins. Kirk stops for a second and sees what these looky-loos are gawking at. He pants a little from his run as sweat gently beads on his puffy red face. Kirk goes into a runner's lunge just to stretch his muscles because seriously, you do not want to pull anything when you've got to run around a spaceship day and night. Properly stretched, Kirk starts on his run again and is tackled by Mr. Scott the Scott and bones the doctor. No! You'll flood the whole compartment, shouts Bones as he, Scott the Scott, and Ensign John St. Johnson hold Kirk back. Dime, Kirk says, clearly so out of breath he can't form a coherent sentence about the money he spotted on the floor and wanted to pick up. Date. He's date already, Scott the Scott says. Okay, I'm going to pause here because I'm afraid this is about to get really sad and I want you to have a moment to compose yourself and prepare and maybe forget about the Scottish accent I just tried to do. Get some tissues. Maybe a blanket to hold on to. I'll wait. Okay? You ready? It's okay to cry. It's okay to cry. It's too late. Bones, the doctor says, and a sudden sobering realization dawns on Kirk's face that he should probably just give up trying to finish this jog. These guys are strong, and Ensign John St. Johnson is hugging him around the waist for some reason, making him a bit uncomfortable. Kirk lets his body go limp, and Scott the Scott, Bones the doctor, and Ensign John St. Johnson let go of Kirk, who staggers forward to rest his hands on a blue glowing column encased in plexiglass. He whispers, Spock, and then hits his head like in those old VA commercials where the person has like a cupcake or something and then smacks themselves in the face saying, damn it, I could have had some pureed tomato soup to drink instead, but I blew it. I blew it. Damn, this forgetful brain. Like that. Then Kirk hits the intercom and shouts Spock's name, and this time it works. 
He has roused his sleepy friend on the other side of the plexiglass. Oh, but Spock is getting up slowly. He maybe didn't stretch before his workout because, boy, howdy, is he having a hard time standing. He does, though, shakily, and adjusts his cute, flared, burgundy blouse, which has ridden up a bit while he was napping on the floor. Always fashion forward, this guy. Spock turns around to face Kirk on the other side of the plexiglass and bumps into the wall separating them. His face is all mottled and scarred, like when you put the spatula too close to the stovetop. Ship out of danger, Spock mutters, shaking his head when Kirk answers with, You betcha, buddy. Then Spock says their code phrase, probably something they came up with on a road trip in their late 20s when driving out to the Badlands with only a six-pack and a mixtape sounded cool. The needs of many, Spock starts, and Kirk finishes his sentence like the pushy bastard he can be. He just can't help himself. Outweigh the needs of the few. Spock, totally PO'd but keeping it real, adds, Or the one. He lets that stinger hit its mark, and as Kirk stands there gasping like a fish on land, Spock continues, I never took the Kobayashi test. Now what do you think of my solution? Kirk is just staring at Spock in frank disbelief. What is with all this sass? Spock realizes he's being a little too shitty and feels bad, so he says, I have been and always shall be your friend. Live long and prosper. And he does the Vulcan middle finger, which Kirk tries to match, but his chubby fingers just don't bend that way. Then Spock just freaking lays down and dies. Classic Spock. Kirk slumps to the floor in shock and grief. Then I know what you're thinking. Cut to Kirk bringing flowers to sickbay, and we see Spock in bed reading Tiger Beat, and Kirk says, you gave us quite a scare. But no, no. Cut to a coffin shaped like a giant eyeglasses case being lowered into the middle of a circle of all our favorite Enterprise friends. Sulu, Chekhov, Scott the Scott, with full bagpipe, Kirk, the Bones Doctor, Uhuru, and Savik, all looking glum and shit. Spock is date. Dead. Never, ever to return. Ever. Spock dies? What kind of bullshit is that? Well, anyway, Beth Stelling, thanks for rocking our world. Join us next time for chapters narrated by Dave Hill and Wayne Brady and the season finale of The Novelizers. Until then, Kevin, land this spaceship. Sure thing, Andy. Thanks to this week's guest contributors, Beth Stelling, Maurice LaMarche, Mickey Cathers, Sheck Baker, and Jerry Cole. Links to their fabulous books, swag, and cameo accounts can all be found in the show description. The Novelizers was created by Stephen Levison, produced by Stephen, Chris Karwowski, and Rob Kuttner, and edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Karwowski. Music by Cole Imhoff, Andrew Lynn, Mike Wilson, and Chris Manson. Special thanks to Rachel Railman, Sarah Mabe, Crystal Dennis, Kelsey Steinkamp, Dennis DeClaudio, and Hannah Levinson. 
Follow The Novelizers on Instagram and Twitter at The Novelizers or visit thenovelizers.com. The Novelizers is a work of parody unauthorized by Paramount, Roddenberry Entertainment, or Star Trek. I'm Andy's intern, Kevin Carter, ready to beam up.